Hi, welcome to the podcast. I am Joe Posnanski and uh, thrilled today to have Hank Azaria with us. Hank, thank you so much for taking the time. Thank you, Joe. Uh, I'd like to take this opportunity to officially announce that I am changing my name, my celebrity name, uh, my professional name, to Joe Posnanski. So this might be awkward, I guess. It'll be weird but for I us now- to go back and forth like that, yeah. Yeah, well, you, you know, I do insist, though, that you call me Joe Posnanski for the rest of the uh, interview. So so as awkward as it is, let's just make the best. We'll do the best we can with it. We do the best. All right, there's so many things I want to talk about, but obviously we're going to start with the new show, Brockmire, which I love, hilarious. Uh, my my good friend Alan Sepinwall sent me a, uh, a text uh, at some point saying, uh, you have to see this because it is a, I think the word he used was, it's an obscene love letter to baseball, which I think it could be better, right? That is accurate. That is accurate. <laughs> I'll answer is Jim Brockmeyer, Joe Posnanski. That was accurate. Um, yeah, it's a uh, an alcohol-fueled, dirty, dirty, <laughs> sybaritic, whatever word, you, large or small word you want to throw at it, uh, love letter to baseball, among other things. It's a love letter to other things, too. It's a lot about social media and the digital world that we live in now and about the difference in generations as exemplified by how generations look at baseball. And uh, it's a, it's about some dark things, too. Very you know, dark. Alcoholism and, uh, and, uh, and sex addiction and drug addiction and how that kind of wrecks people's lives. Yeah, it's about a lot of stuff. It's really cool. I mean, it's, and it's, you know, and obviously baseball is the background, and yet... Because of of Jim Brockmeyer, and I know that's a character that you invented a long time ago. Um, there is a lot of baseball, even even in the in some of the other stuff. I mean, there's definitely. I mean, you could. I think that the baseball, uh, your love of baseball, your love of sports, really comes through, and I, I know that was important to you. It was, and the writer I hook up hooked up with, I was fortunate enough to hook up with Joel Church Cooper, is also. Uh, very knowledgeable baseball guy and uh, is a deep, deep love of baseball and a deep understanding of what is awesome and absurd about baseball yeah. and, and what is, um, you know, how it fits into our society and, or doesn't, depending on <laughs> who you ask. Uh, and that's written right in as well. Yeah. The, let me let me start off with the with the Jim Brockmeyer voice. Obviously, voices your, you know, you, I mean, you, you do a lot of things so well, but obviously, voice is what you're known for in so many ways with the Simpsons and that. The Jim Brockmeyer voice, uh, I hear a lot of different baseball people in it. I, I think it's probably pretty directly. There's there's a lot of Bob Murphy in it. There's a, there's a little bit of Vin in it. There's a little Red Barber in it. That's what I hear. Tell me a little bit about the voice and, and how you, you built that voice. Again, I'll answer as Jim Brackmeyer, because it's hard to talk about this voice without actually talking in this voice. Um, it's, I call it the generic baseball announcer voice, uh, Joe, it, it's, especially when I was growing up in the 70s. Yes, I listened to Bob Murphy as a Met fan, but Bob was more guttural. Bob was a little more here. Uh, he is as if uh, he was take the Brockmeyer voice and smoke cigarettes for 15 years, and you kind of get Bob Murphy. But it is that you're, you're right to pick up on that sort of uh, professional announcer twang that these guys seem to all have. Not just baseball sports announcers, but 
you know, uh, TV announcers, the guy who sold you the Ginsu knife <laughs> and the guy, you know, Popeil's pocket fisherman seemed to, um, and it lends itself to doing promotional, uh, you know, uh, uh, spiel, you know, for, for selling Valvoline or, or, or whatever it is these guys are, or, 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 or uh, Buick or whatever these guys are selling on the break or, or, or these, these, these uh, copy reads they do. I got uh, just obsessed with it, and I wondered why this was the voice that was just seemed to be the vanilla ice cream default setting voice of uh, commercialism in our culture, and uh, and then I got obsessed with thinking of these guys. They talk like this in their personal lives. Yeah, they, uh, as you see in the show, like right. they dirty talk during sex this way. Do they fight with the girlfriend this way? Do they, you know, have a meltdown on the air and still give you the cat right afterwards while giving you the charismatic, deep, golden-throated voice of the ham? It's great to have Jim Brockmar, by the way, you know, self-narrating sex. I mean, I think that seems to me to be, obviously that's at the heart of, of all of this, but, but seeing it actually in action on the show was very, both disturbing and, 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 <laughs> perfect right it's i mean it is there's no question it's something we've all thought about <laughs> um certainly something i've thought about uh <laughs> and uh yeah you know it lent itself to that kind of thing and you know joel cooper that's such great here's like why i love this writer okay so we all knew that would be that's a funny idea sure. right does this guy even call sex right <laughs> why not right but First of all, to put it in baseball terms like he does, the idea of the fa a fastball sign and a curveball sign, right, <laughs> is uh, amazing as a finger in the keister during sex. Uh, and then the fact that his understanding of the guy like this, there's an emotional need for him to do that. Like even more when he's calling um, <laughs> the sex, I like the moment when Brockmeyer gets off the bus and he's a little freaked out in this small town. He's been out of the country for 10 years. He's trying to get back into baseball. And, you know, he just looks around, and he just <laughs> has to narrate what's happening to him just to calm himself down. So Bachmann is going to reach for the doobie early. It's let's great. see who... And yeah, I mean, it's just his way of emotionally processing stuff. Well, and it's how we're introduced to the character, right? That's, that's the first thing, is he gets off the bus, and we're introduced to this character... He's he's all alone. He doesn't even know when or if anybody's going to meet him, and he's you know he's doing the Jim Brockmeyer you know announcing of what he's going through. That's so. I mean, it's 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 very very funny, but there is like a depth to that kind of writing, isn't there? There is, and I, I really must credit the writing. I mean, with the short I created for Funnier Die eight years ago. Um, I mean, it was it had some pathos to it, and it had reality. Uh, but you know, I, I was kind of shooting at sophomoric, well observed, interesting, <laughs> hard laughs. You know what I mean? Yeah. It was Joel and the director Tim Kirkby directed all of them, who kind of saw the depth and pain of it, and are both talented enough in their own mediums and their own styles. One as a director, one as writer, to retain what's funny, actually enhance what's funny with the humanity of the thing, it's, which was really fun to work with these guys. That's great. I, I want to, we're going to talk a little bit of sports, actual sports here in a minute, but I want to ask you so much of what you have done, obviously is about voices. I know that you've been fascinated by, by voices and have been doing voices basically all your life. Um, but how important is that for you? I mean, is, 
does the character Brockmire, for instance, or the character Mo or, or Apu or, or any of the Simpson, great Simpson voices, do they come out of the voice for you? I mean, when you're thinking about the character, does the, does the voice come first? Does the character come first? How, how does that work in your mind? Uh, totally voice first. I, I, for some reason, uh, most human beings are primarily visual creatures. I suppose I am too, but I really ta- I seem to take in the world mostly through what I heard, huh. and then found at a young age that I could mimic uh, it a lot of it fairly well, and that's how I sort of started out without even realizing that I, that meant I wanted to be an actor or a comedian or anything like that. I just I just liked to imitate what I heard as precisely as I could. And uh, so, yes, these voices are what I start with when I play a character like this. And then I, I tend to fill it in with, you know, what their psychology, emotionality might be. Will you change the voices? I mean, will the voices adjust or shift just a little bit for you as, as the character becomes clearer to you? I, not consciously. I mean, look... Uh, they're all just imitations, you know, yeah. not just a famous, like all the Simpsons, like obviously the Brockmire voices, I'm trying to imitate as precisely as I can that that sort of generic sports announcer voice that I grew up with. Uh, motor bartender is a very bad <laughs> Al Pacino impression on, in one level or another. Apu is a... Sounds very much like the the Seven Eleven attendants that I knew uh, in Los Angeles in my early twenties. Uh, Chief Wiggum is a pretty bad Edward G. Robinson impression, or rather Mel Blanc imitating Edward G. Robinson. And, and so on and on and on. And it, even if they're not great, some of them are rather good impressions. Some of them are not so good. But they're all interesting character voices, which for a cartoon guy, a voice guy, is all you're really shooting for. Yeah. But... Uh, and it was years later that I learned to fill in these characters with any kind of uh, anything approaching depth that I had to learn in acting classes. Well, thing. It's, it's really interesting. Okay. So one of my favorite roles for you, uh, and I don't know how many people say this to you, uh, was a quiz show, which I loved and I loved the movie and I loved your role in it was the, you know, the, you're playing, you're playing a, a, a very interesting uh, character. You, you're, you're not, you're not obviously the, the main character, but you, in a very small period of time, get across exactly who you are. I mean, is voice for something like that still important? Well, it's for me in that role. That was subtle, but I played a guy from New York. I'm from New York. I'm from Queens. <laughs> I grew up with a pretty thick New York accent like I'm doing right now. Yeah. Uh, and, uh, you know, I, which I dropped as I became an actor, and then I moved to L.A. and this and that. But, you know, talking like this, it kind of connects you to your roots. It's definitely a character voice. It's a little more of a subtle one. Yeah. But it's a character voice. And I, I did that. I did another, I've did i done a version of that in a few things. And I have a HBO film coming out in May with uh, Robert De Niro and Michelle Pfeiffer about the Bernie Madoff scandal. Oh, wow. And I play a character named Frank DePascali, who is a, oh, yeah, pretty much a good fella. <laughs> who got mixed up in all this, who, you know, you can't play this guy right unless you're, you know, you're giving him a bit of that New York working class edge. <laughs> so, yeah, I tend to, sometimes not like in Ray Donovan, I'm just being, I, the guy's twisted psychologically and emotionally, but it's coming out through the filter of me. There's no vocal thing going on there. 
It's really interesting. You you mentioned Mel Blanc and and uh, you know obviously that's a that's who 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 doesn't love Mel Blanc and and he I think he was a hero to everybody before you even knew that he was all of these characters and Bugs Bunny, but but all of them. Um, Mel Blanc does that? He do you connect to him in your own way? Oh yeah, I mean he's a. Good... Honestly, I think most vocal guys would agree with this. There's him and everybody else. Yeah, he was the genius, the groundbreaker, the, and there were things that he could do that nobody else can do. As a child growing up, you know, as kids still do, I loved Bugs Bunny. I think my hero was Bugs Bunny. Sure. And then by around age eleven or twelve, I learned that that was a guy. <laughs> that was a guy not only doing that, but doing Daffy Duck and. Porky Pig and many, many other, and Sylvester and other voices that I loved. And then, then he became my hero. Yeah. Yeah. I love, I mean, and I'm a huge, you know, fan of Mel Blanc as, as, as well. And I love that, like in the, like he does the opera singer, right? So he's the opera singer in Bugs Bunny's, you know, in the, in the couple thing, things where Bugs Bunny's is up against an opera singer. And he doesn't sound like an opera singer, but he sounds like the way you would want an opera singer to sound, right? I mean, that's, that, that seems to me to be, and, and I, you know, I connect that in my own way, kind of to Brockmire. Like Brockmire doesn't necessarily sound exactly like any specific announcer, but you hear all of these different announcers in it. And I know that that has to come from just loving baseball announcers or sports announcers in general. Oh, totally. It's gen- really, it is generic. There were guys who sounded like this. I mean, I could point to some guys who to me are pretty close. The, the modern uh, John Miller isn't too far off. Yeah, you do. A, you do a John Miller, right? You do. You do a John Miller. Well, race. I do Bragmeyer. John Miller <laughs> is a little bit different. John Miller's a little more uh, polished and uh, a little um, uh, what's the word? A little friendlier. Somehow, I don't know how to <laughs> describe the vocal quality. But sometimes when I would be doing Bragmeyer, it's like, oh, that sounded like John Miller. Occasionally, it just goes there. Uh, but, but John Miller is a no, you know, John, I've been saying this a lot. He's amazing. Amazing. He's a singular talent. Uh, he is distinctive. Um, his voice might be sort of, of a quality that is easily identifiable. The the Brockmire voice I hear mostly in the modern era, uh, during Saturday afternoon NCAA men's basketball games. (laughs) You get a fair amount of guys who will give you this. It's good afternoon. We got a good one for you today. We got the Hoyas of Georgetown going up against the Temple Owls. And it's like, man, I I call them Brockmires. Like, that guy's a Brockmire. That guy's a Brockmire. That's so great. There's one last thing about Brockmire I want to say, and I mentioned Red Barber earlier today. I, you know, there's a, there's sort of a famous, uh, a famous, you know, line that I'm sure you've heard. I, I think Tom Wolf, Thomas Wolf wrote it first, or Tom Wolf wrote it first, that rather, uh, that all pilots basically sound the the same when they're when they're giving you, you know, uh, we're going to have a little bit of, uh, you know, turbulence coming up ahead or whatever yeah. the case may be. They all have like, and they all basically go back to one person. It feels to me like. Baseball announcers, wherever they're from, have a little Red Barber twang in their voice just because Red Barber did it. Like, it's like Red Barber sort of defined how announcers are supposed to sound. He was the he was the first. And and because of that, a lot of base. And there's definitely a little Red Barber twang in Brockmire, right? For sure. Give, yeah, and I agree. He's sort of the grand or the great grandfather or great, great grandfather <laughs> at this point. I'm not even sure how to identify him of these guys. Uh 
Um, and he perhaps did set the standard of some of the template. But, you know, the, the, this, I'm a, I'm a freakish student of this stuff. Not that it's all documented, but just to my ear anyway. I mean, the way people sounded in general, it tends to morph over the decade. The 1920s got like, say, why I ought to, now don't get sore at me. There was like sort of generic 1920s guy, and there was a little bit of a different generic 1950s guy. And it's a different modern guy, uh, not even announcers, just the way, yeah. you know, you tend, people tend to talk in society. Um, and so Red Barber had some of that antiquated uh, timber to his yes. voice, in my opinion. But, uh, yeah, you know, somebody somewhere along the line, that's partly what fascinated me. I'm like, who decided this? That this is the sound of this? Right. I mean, and do these guys sound this way? Like, do you sound this way? You know, growing up and as an adult, I mean, you go, you know, I think my voice might be good for radio and broadcasting. Or do you talk like this? And then you go to broadcasting school and you come out, well, now I am ready to roll with a professional broadcasting career. Come on. I mean, I, I don't know. It's so great. It's okay. And, and I have to admit, and this is, this is definitely an aside, I'm thinking a lot about this kind of thing because um, I'm writing a book about Harry Houdini and, and there's one recording of Houdini. And it's from 19, you know, 16, 15, right in that range. Uh, and he's talking about the Chinese water torture cell, but he clearly had never spoken into a microphone before. So it's very right. stilted and, and ladies and gentlemen, you know, like this. And I have no right. idea if that's really how he sounded. I mean, that's thinking about voice like that. I mean, your point about, uh, about generic voices from whatever period fascinating because is that really how they sounded or is that just how we recorded them and because they didn't know what recording devices were it's really voice is fascinating right i mean it's just fascinating yeah i mean look i could it probably would bore your listeners but i could talk about this for a long time <laughs> is how people sound from what era you know the announcers like those like newsreel announcers they yeah. had a real timber like this <laughs> you know Watch out for, and, and back in New York, ah, well, I say, and that, you heard that a lot. You know, I think as a student of acting, also I can tell you, you can sort of tell who's the real deal. Like, for example, you watch Jimmy Stewart from It's a Wonderful Life, yeah. which I think came out in 1938 or 39. Right. He doesn't engage in any of that. I mean, he's got a very distinctive voice himself, but... There's no, he does not, he's not a slave to the vocal conventions of the era. You know oh. what I mean? He's a true original. Yeah. You know, yeah. Uh, neither was Brando. You know, there was a way men sounded in the 50s, not Brando. You know, um, uh, Cary Grant had a very distinctive voice, but he didn't give over to any of vocal convention. That might, nor would he, any of those guys... Uh, pretend to be anybody but themselves, and thus their performances are, are timeless. You know, and partially it's because they're not sounding like anybody else or trying to. Yeah, that, that's so fascinating. I think the voice part of it does not get talked about. It's sort of everybody talks about Brando being, you know, obviously not of his time and 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 sort of breaking through. And but yeah, the voice is a huge, huge part. It's so. I mean, obviously this is this is such a big part of how you think and, and work. But I, I find that to be fascinating. And I also find it to be fascinating to trans, uh, you know, work our way over to a little bit of sports. Uh, I was just reading about you growing up, obviously in New York um, and, and being a huge sports fan, which means Marv Albert was a huge part of your life, right? I mean, that voice 
is oh yeah oh my gosh just it, it's incredible Marv Albert pretty easily imitated at least to us sort of hackish degree it's, you know everybody does a, some version of a Marv Albert yes yeah. and it counts there was even a TV there was even a sports fantasy football show but they had a segment called with authority that was actually titled the segment of the show um but and then Marv, you know, to connect it to Brockmeyer, he's somebody who had a a public a public uh, meltdown yeah. of a yeah. sort <laughs> and a disgraced moment, and he had to go, and he he came back. Lucky for him, and lucky for us, he's a great announcer. He's a great announcer. Um, yeah, but he but was I a big, listen, yeah. big part I of your childhood, right? I mean, it, you were a huge. I mean, that I'm not exaggerating this, right? Huge sports fan, right? Huge. I would listen to Marv pretty much every night. I preferred. The radio, Marv's radio broadcast, yeah. even to, uh, uh, back then, you didn't get every single game, remember? Yeah. Like, which was so weird. <laughs> it's um, weird now. Yeah, the idea that you wouldn't get the game. And so you had the radio, and I would listen to Marv, which wasn't so bad, and a Nerf hoop set up in my room, and I would, like, act out what Marv was describing in my room. Um which back then it was a different brand of basketball, Joe. There's a lot more passing involved. There's a lot more passing to myself. I played a lot more defense against myself too back then. Was there a sport specific? I know you're a big, big baseball. You're a big Mets fan, right? A huge Mets fan. Yeah, Mets. Uh, Mets. Uh, big Knicks fan, I would assume. Uh, yes. Football, Giants, Jets. Which which way did you Jets. go? It's Jets. It's usually Mets, Jets in New York, or or Giants, Yankees. I'm from Queens, which is. Mets Jets Mets and Jets. Knicks. Knicks is the common ground. And and Islanders? Did you take it that? Did you take it all the way to hockey? I did. I loved the Rangers and the Islanders. I know I wasn't a huge hockey fan, but mostly, really, what I, I loved sports. I was I was a television addict and and fanatic as a child, and to the end. And sports were on television quite a lot. Yes. So if it was on, I was going to watch it. And I didn't differentiate between you know Islanders, Rangers, Mets, Yankees. Uh, Knicks, Nets. I watched it all. You know, I really loved it. Well, of course, and it was tougher then. Like you said, the games weren't always on, so it was like, hey, there's there's a there's a sport on. I'm watching. It doesn't really have the, uh, you don't have. It's not like you could be choosy about what you were watching. Exactly. And you remember the days of the ABA? My oh yeah. God, that was just <laughs> glorious. That was amazing. So it was really fun to watch. Yeah, I always um, find. I always think like people always will will ask why there can't be like a wide world of sports or something like that now. And it's like, because we just didn't have the options then. I mean, whatever was on wide world of sports, I'm going to watch it's sports. It's on television. I'm, of course I'm going to watch it. Yeah. I mean, you know, we were just talking, I was talking to Duke Castiglione over at Fox sports in New York. Yeah. The early days of sports analysis was, you know, Bill Mazur in New York on sports <laughs> extra Sunday nights at 10 30. And that that's it. There was, no, there was nothing else. There was, this was pre-ESPN. There weren't like 15 options of, of uh, uh, where you're going to get your sports analysis or commentary from. You know, you had the paper, and you had Bill Mazur, and that was it. That was it. Now, have you maintained? I mean, it's been, you've, you're, you're a busy guy. You do tons and tons of things. Uh, have you maintained that, that sports fan there? Do you, get to, do you still watch a lot of sports? Oh, yeah. It's my main, I play poker, and I, I'm a sports fan. Those are my main hobbies, ways I relax. And, you know, in this, in this modern era of DVRing everything, yeah. I can record the shows I like, 
and, and all the, the the games I like, and you can watch it at your own pace. And I don't know about you, but I've learned ways that I enjoy fast forwarding if I don't yes. have time. To, <laughs> you know, I, I and they're very specific to each sport. Um, my first choice is if I have enough time just to watch the whole thing, but. Yeah, you know, I have a young son, and I don't always have time to do that. But yeah, no. But especially even more than the events themselves, which I love, you know, just watching PTI or Highly Questionable or uh, Daily News Live here in New York or Loudmouth. I just really enjoy watching guys <laughs> talk about sports. So you like being around it? Just really, really like being around. And it doesn't. Are you still a? It doesn't matter what sport, whatever's on. Is I'm watching. I, this is why I identify as a, I'm a Mets fan first, baseball second, because I, I have an obsessive, crazy fascination with the Nets and I, Mets, and I know a lot about the Mets. And yeah. again, in this modern digital era, you can get a lot of information really quickly. I mean, every day, be up to the minute on what's going on um, and what the storylines are. Same with the Knicks. Uh, I'm a Jets fan, but football is the only sport. I love football. It's the only sport where I will um, – I have a pretty good awareness of the entire NFL. Part of that is because fantasy sure. uh, football gives you a good working knowledge of a lot of players at once, not just on your own team. Um, and I just, I, it's the only sport where, you know, any two teams, you know, Tampa Bay against Philly, I'm going to watch it enthusiastically. I can't, I can't say that about any other sport. Yeah, and that is the NFL. I mean, the NFL is so national in the way that they – that they are. I mean, obviously Sunday night football is like an event in, in a way that, that other, other sports don't quite have. We can't talk about the Knicks because the, that's just depressing. Uh, but the Mets. All right. So we have to talk a little bit about the Mets, obviously great, great pitching. Uh, don't know if they're going to score enough runs. How do you look? How do you look at the Mets this year? Well, the early returns on the runs thing. I mean, I know this, I was actually at opening day that that big, uh, yeah, that big sixth inning, which is mostly thanks to the uh, the inefficiency of Eric O'Flaherty. Yes. To, I, I got to tell you something, Joe. When he walked out there to come into the game for the Braves, my mind got blown out because I'm like, <laughs> first of all, I couldn't believe this guy's still allowed to pitch. Couldn't believe it. I was He was absolutely ridiculous for the Mets, and to the point where I couldn't believe the Mets kept letting him back <laughs> on the mound. And I turned to everybody in this, at City Field and said, you guys remember this guy? Who, who remembers her? I took a show of hands in the section around me. Who remembers O'Flaherty? I said a few hands. I said, right, we're about to score at least three, four runs, right? <laughs> and sure enough, I couldn't believe it. And it led, I actually did a little event the other night with a couple of um, very good sports writers. Uh, they were getting on me about only 700 MLB baseball players and, you know, as bad as he might seem in that outing, these are the greatest of the greats. I'm like, guys, all I know is I've never seen Eric O'Flaherty throw a ball or Bobby Parnell when he came back that he did not, he did not, he did not just give up multiple runs and couldn't <laughs> throw a strike. And, and I've got to believe that there's guys in the minors that, how could you? You couldn't do any worse than these guys are doing. I mean, Parnell had an ERA of fifteen over like twenty games. I mean, and I don't. And I actually asked them the question. I was like, "See, it's to the casual fan, which I consider myself. It just seems, but one who watches every day, sure, it seems obvious. Like I would just, I, I, I know. And Terry Collins, to be fair to me. He almost did get in a lot of trouble for how much he had faith in Bobby Parnell. Yeah. I mean, he went on about five, ten games too long uh, of letting Parnell throw. 
I know he's a good guy, and he was coming back from injury, and everybody wanted to give him every chance. But um, there are certain things that seem real obvious to the casual fan observer. And I wonder if maybe we almost can be a little bit more objective sometimes. It's just obvious. I wonder if these guys overthink it a little bit as they analyze it from inside it. Or it's just that there's, it's the opposite, that there's stuff we don't know that's at play, you know, that, that really justifies doing things that would seem frustrating to the average fan. I don't know. Maybe well, it's a combination. I think it's a combination of both. I really do. I really think that certainly those, you know, these, these guys, that this is their lives and they spend countless, countless hours trying to get exactly right. And, and, you know, they, they will tell you about a guy who's struggling, uh, you know, Hey, he, yeah, he's struggling, but he's got this kind of stuff. Uh, you know, he's, he, we've seen him do this. We know he can do this, whatever. So I think that's true. But I also think it is true that it's very, very easy to just get so bogged down by all that stuff that you do miss what's right in front of you. I, I really do believe that. I think that's a it's a very, very big part of sports. I don't think there's any way to uh, to explain um, some of the things that people do without believing that, where you just go, you know, these guys got so caught up in it. I, I thought like last year when, when the Orioles, uh, Buck Showalter was a great manager, when he made the decision to not go to his closer as the game kept going on and on and on and on, it, I think that's when you get too bogged down with 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 you know the, what you know and what you understand about the game and stop. Just you can't just step back and look at the obvious. It feels like that way to me. It does. It seems like sometimes, at least, just what's you know trust the optics. You don't need to be an expert to you know make an instinctual decision based on common sense. Um, but, you know, yes, Mets offense is going to be the question. Uh, certainly Bartolo kind of broke my heart to watch Bartolo throwing in a Braves uniform yeah, and, yeah. And, 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 and throwing his way right through the Mets, picking up right up, <laughs> picking up right where he left off from last year. Uh, but yeah, but I think they're going to be all right. I know that, um, you know, Mats and, uh, and, um, uh, Lugo are going down so quickly. Yeah. Uh, it's not a great sign. See, that's another thing. I've sort of, I've already kind of had it with Stephen Matz. I know that's kind of half frustrated, immature fan, right? <laughs> Needs immediate results. But right, I, that might not be totally insane. That's been a lot, a lot of injury over there. That has a been a of, lot of injury. Yeah, it wouldn't be insane to say maybe that kid's a little too fragile. And I kind of feel the same way about Travis Darno. Wow, wow. Uh, yeah, I mean, well, the guy is often hurt and only hits every once in a while. It got seemed last year to really get in his head. Um, I guess everybody would agree that this year's make or break for him, pretty much. Huge year, huge, huge year for him. I, I think that's really. I think your, your points are right. I mean, I think they're interesting. I do think that the big question. So, and and, and you know, my good friend Mike Vaccaro wrote this for the Post today. Is I do think pitching is going to be pretty spectacular whether Matt's is healthy or not and I mean I I think their pitching is going to be really really good and I really I think it's an open question I mean I think the Nationals are going to score a lot of runs I think it's an open question do the Mets score enough runs to to win it this year yeah that'll I mean it's probably is bad in health of course sure um it's gonna be the main things um which there are many question marks there a lot of guys coming back uh, they'll be streaky, I imagine. They're, they're a very streaky team. So far, I mean, nice to see Jay Bruce hitting the ball. Yeah. Uh, as Drupal and Dre, Jay Bruce seem to be 
you know, uh, starting the fastest. Um, I have no doubt, though, that Neil Walker's going to hit pretty well. We know that Lucas Dude is going to be extremely streaky. Um, be amazing. Listen, I'm rooting for Travis to really bounce back. Um, I, I, you know, how the outfield sorts itself out should be fascinating. Too. Absolutely, that's, the Mets are. That's that's a really fun team. I think that's it's a fascinating team. I mean, you've obviously had some Mets teams that were really good in the past, but you've had some Mets teams that were not only not good but not interesting. I mean, this team is very, very interesting. I think that's. I think they're they're the most interesting team in New York right now. So I think that's that's pretty great. So that's got to be fun for Jim Brockmeyer. Oh, it's a lot of fun for Jim Brockmeyer. In fact, uh, when I talk about the Mets, when I watch the Mets, I do it without any pants on. Uh, I feel that really enhances the experience for me. I, but but um, but seriously, the, the they show this team has heart, which is the most fun part of this team. Yeah, what they did last year in the face of all those injuries, it's the exact opposite of what they did in '07. For example, yeah. they had a ton of talent, and they got real tight, and they blew the biggest lead uh, in baseball in the shortest amount of time. Uh, what seven games? In, uh, they dropped seven games in, in seventeen, and um, you know that was choky. Oh yeah, <laughs> for lack of a better term. And this team has a lot of heart, which is fun, really fun. And and boy, I, I saw you doing a, a quick interview uh, over at Yahoo with uh, Noah Syndergaard. Um, this guy, I mean, you know, look, I don't, I mean, DeGrom is great and Harvey's great and, you know, all of that, but Syndergaard, this guy's like on a different planet. Yeah. I don't even think there's any discussion. I mean, I guess it's very early. The guy's, uh, I think he's 11, 11 years old, which is, <laughs> makes it really incredible when you think about what he's done, but, um, he just won the little league world series last year. And now here he is pitching for the Mets, but I don't think there's any, uh, his ceiling does seem the highest, the right? Highest. Let's put oh, it that way. Gosh, I mean, the, he's throwing ninety-five mile an hour sliders. I mean, it's not—it's not even fair what 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 he does. You know, pure stuff wise, I don't—I don't think anybody in baseball at this moment is is Noah Syndergaard. I mean, I just what about is, Kershaw? Well, Kershaw is a better pitcher, no question. And Kershaw, Kershaw is just a genius of pitching, in addition to having great stuff. But pure stuff, throwing as hard as he can, throwing that slider, it's ridiculous. Um, you know, I mean, there's, there are a lot of good, there are a lot of good. Chris Sale has incredible stuff. Max Scherzer, I mean, you can go on and on. But I, I think if, if somebody said to me, okay, look, you, you, you have your own, your own personality and your own mentality, whatever, but you can have anybody's stuff in baseball, just how hard they throw, how much movement they get on the ball, all of those things. I think I take Noah Syndergaard. I, that, that, wow! Yeah, I mean it's incredible the stuff that guy has. Maybe you know part of it is you get so used to seeing a guy, it almost becomes you yeah. get used to you take it for granted. Yeah. But but when I see like Kershaw's curveball oh, freaks me out sometimes. Chris Sale too. I don't know if you saw any of the the Red Sox game yesterday, but Chris Sale he throws a, a slider curveball thing that's kind of it breaks like six feet. It's insane. It's just absolutely insane. Baseball's great. I, baseball's so much fun. It is, right? I mean, I love it. And it's so funny. And you know, to bring it back to Brockmeyer, uh, right? You know, this kid, this black kid played by Tyrell Williams. Yeah. Who's 16, who just doesn't get it, actively doesn't get it. Like, I don't know. <laughs> he says, like, the only, the only thing stupider 
that having two boring ass baseball games in one day is having a two hour break between the boring ass baseball games. Um, I mean, that's about as much as he thinks about it. And uh, it is kind of a generational thing, you know. It's hard to compete with, uh, as Brock Myers says, from, you know, with, you know, with with the internet, with you know, the quick cuts and the ADD and the the fast stuff and and with the porn and with everything else that can distract you. What does poor baseball have a chance? You know. Yeah, it's really, it's really that. That's that's one of my favorite parts of the show. Honestly, is that relationship and Brock Meyer in his own Brock Meyerish way. Selling the game to a 16 year old African American who has no interest, none. And, <laughs> and, and that's really fun. It's really because sometimes it feels like he's going to break through and kind of show him something really cool about baseball. And then other times it feels like never going to happen. This guy's never going to like baseball, no matter what you do. That's fun. I, I really enjoy that part. And Tyrell, he's actually 20. He relates i mean we actually have that relationship in real life because <laughs> awesome. I, I, you I, I don't guys like i mean i'm about to be 53 this month i just assume everybody has a working knowledge of baseball yeah you know i mean how do you know it's american i mean <laughs> you know we all know how to eat a slice of pizza and we all know what apple pie tastes like and we all know basically what baseball is all about but not everybody does it so true. surprises me it does me too me too Hank, this has been fantastic. I can't thank you enough for taking the time and uh, best of luck with everything. It's, it's, I mean, what, I don't think you need luck. You got a lot going on. Uh, thanks a lot, Joe. I appreciate it.